Hello everyone, welcome to SNIT. Studies in National and International Development is the longest running weekly interdisciplinary seminar series at Queen's University. Since 1983, SNIT has proudly hosted prominent Canadian and international scholars who bring fresh perspectives to issues of local, national, and global development. Please share our podcast with friends, family, and colleagues. We're glad to have you with us. Let's get going. Um, so welcome everyone to our second SNIT of this term. Thank you all for joining us today and throughout the year. Uh, we really appreciate your presence, especially on such a snowy day for those of you who are in Southern Ontario. Um, we're having a nice little snowstorm um, over the last 24 hours. Uh, so first, we'd like to acknowledge that even though this is a virtual event, it is being jointly hosted by SNID, or it is being hosted by SNID, um, which is supported by Queen's University, and Queen's is on the shores of Lake Ontario on the traditional territories of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy and the Anishinaabek Nation. This territory is included in the Dish with One Spoon Wampum Belt Covenant, an agreement between the Anishinaabe, Mississaugas, and the Haudenosaunee to peaceably share and care for the resources around the Great Lakes, including Lake Ontario. And as we gather today and learn about neoliberal India, we also encourage you to think of how some of the macro political violences of neoliberalism and predatory capitalism also dispossess through land and through gendered violence here on this land and this territory too. So my name is Carolyn Kraus. I'm an assistant professor in geography and planning here at Queen's, and I co-chair SNID with Dr. Aicha Tomach. Moniki Asuncao is our graduate student coordinator. And as many of you know, SNID is the longest running interdisciplinary seminar series at Queen's, and we're committed to hosting anti-colonial and justice-oriented scholars, practitioners, and activists. Um, and we have a slate of really exciting talks this term. I will put them in the chat as we get going here. Um, but without further ado, I'm going to pass it over to Aicha to introduce our speaker for today. Hello, folks. Thank you, Carolyn. Uh, today, we are really happy to welcome our dear colleague and friend of SNED, Dr. Kukreja, Rina Kukreja. Uh, Dr. Kukreja is an assistant professor in the Department of Global Development Studies with Cross-Appointment to Gender Studies Department and Affiliation with Cultural Studies Program here at Queen's. She's a researcher and filmmaker who focuses on migration and development, uh, marriage migration, masculinities, political economy, and caste. She has published a number of articles in major journals in these fields. Today, she will be introducing her most recent book, Why Would I Be Married Here? Marriage, Migration, and Dispossession in Neoliberal India, uh, which was recently published by Cornell University Press. Her in-person book launch will be tonight at Novel Idea downtown at 7 p.m. Uh, also, her uh, multimedia photo voice exhibit, uh, This is Evidence, is also backed by popular demand and will be open for visits between February 6th and 17th. Uh, we invite you all to these events as well, and I will share uh, the details in the chat as well. Welcome, Rina, and congratulations on your book. Thank you so much, Aicha, Carolyn, and Monique for um, inviting me to SNID and um, allowing me some space to speak about some of my findings from the book, Why Would I Be Married Here? I just want to extend thanks also to all those of you who have supported me in this long journey to bring it to fruition, my family, my supervisor, my supervisory committee, 
and not the least um, all the women and their families who said yes we want this to be written and spoken um the filmmaker in me um is going to use just images i felt i don't want to bore you with my speaking head so you will have these images as representational images these are from my work all the research that I did over the years um, in those regions. And of course, there's gonna be very little text, just so you know, it's gonna be me verbally speaking, giving you that visual break. So I'm just gonna begin speaking the screen, I'm sharing the screen. Um, and let's see, I hope I can do that. Um, right, okay, so I'm gonna talk as um, Aicha and Carolyn said about my recent book, Why Would I Be Married Here? That examines marriage migration taking place within the national boundaries of India. Now, this is something important to hold on to that the migration is taking place within the national boundaries. While I place Indian cross-region marriages within the larger global context of marriage-related migratory flow of brides, within Southeast and East Asia, this book of mine underscores the distinctly different nature of the marriage migration undertaken in contemporary India. So the question that often we ask is, um, I'm asked, marriage migration, why focus on it? Why is it so significant? What is the import of what is known as cross-region marriages for understanding new forms of gender oppression? So, you know, in my book, I elaborate and talk about how these marriages allow for access to and control of low caste gendered labor that is rendered docile and disciplined um, for global capital. And I'll elaborate on it subsequently. Um, I begin with a quote by a woman who actually inspired me to theorize much more. Um, she she looked at me when I asked her, why did you get married here in North India? And she looked at me and said, poverty is a powerful force that shapes people's destinies. It torments the life out of you. If I was not poor, do you think I would have been married here? Incidentally, that image is of her as she spoke to me and looked at me directly at the camera. These poignant words spoken by Mehru Nissa, a young cross-region bride who I met in Haryana, have resonated with me ever since she uttered them. Her words encapsulate the ferocity of the gendered impact of neoliberal capitalist accumulation in India that has had a devastating impact on impoverished rural women from India's marginalized communities like her. It is one that I discuss in detail in my book and what I hope to share with you as my theorizing and key findings in very broad strokes in the 45 minutes or so. Of course, this I hope I hope that you know there'll be some Q&As. So a new form of marriage making emerged in rural North India from the 1990s onwards, both among the Hindus and among a particular group of Muslims known as neo-Muslims. These marriages are considered breaking customary marriage rules of endogamy, that is in which marriage alliances are undertaken within one's own caste group and religion. This breaking of marriage rules is highly unusual for India and I'll explain so in a minute. Um, <clears throat> Obviously, the dominant understanding of these marriages is to view them with a very simplistic frame of bridal slavery, bride trafficking, and a low societal worth accorded to Indian women. These marriages are also viewed as a tragic outcome of skewed sex ratio, rampant sex selective abortion, and girl dispreference. These are hailed in breaking down the caste underpinning of marriage and in promoting national integration by uniting diverse cultural groups, diverse cultural and ethnic groups. 
So this is where I want to take a brief digression to explain the centrality of caste and religion in governing people's lives and the key role of marriage as a social institution in upholding caste hierarchies in present-day India. So <clears throat> the traditional hierarchical kinship economic system called the caste or varna system is characterized by four castes or varnas arranged in a pyramid-like structure with Brahmins at the top, the Kshatriyas in the middle, the Vaishyas at the third layer, the Shudras at the bottom. Apart from these four caste groups, a significant proportion of people involved in what is considered ritually polluting occupations such as handling waste or dead animals or doing um, various forms of menial labor are placed outside this fourfold hierarchy as untouchables. These are the people who have sought to reclaim identity and say that and position themselves as Dalits. And this is a castaway term that I'll be using for this group throughout my talk. The patriarchal institution of marriage and endogamy or marriage within the same caste and its subgroup therein is pivotal in facilitating the perpetuation of unequal caste hierarchies. Intercaste marriages are considered taboo and individual autonomy in mate selection is usually overridden in favor of pragmatic matrimonial choices to ensure that caste hierarchies that otherwise might get eroded get men are maintained. The Muslim male, the, the Indian Muslims, including the male, despite Islam's emphasis on an egalitarian society, echo the social stratification of the Hindus based on occupation and birth. They also follow the Hindu marriage customs of caste endogamy. So everything that I explained to you about caste and marriage and hierarchies is also witnessed among the male Muslims, the one group that I'm focusing on. Among the male, there's another thing that's happening that marriage with other Indian Muslims is frowned upon and invites class, you know, clan censure. So they only marry within their own group. Despite claims of a modernizing impulse of Indians, religion and caste um, play a determining role in marriages among the Hindus and the Muslims. To give you an idea, intercaste marriages in both urban and rural India make up just 5% of the total marriages. So, you know, what are we talking about? Caste has eroded, it hasn't. Within rural North India, where my work is based, intercaste marriages are met with social ostracism, beatings, and even death of so-called errant couple by local communities and caste groups, such as the image that you see over here. Um, with my filmmaking practice and research located in rural India and having worked in these communities for a couple of decades, my interest was piqued by this phenomenon. I struggled to situate these novel marriage migrations as a consequence of widespread societal dispreference or as instances of celebratory intercaste alliances. I had similar concerns about the assumption that these matrimonies constituted egregious abuse of rural women by traffickers, <clears throat> who undertook advantage of the poverty to traffic them as bridal slaves. Um, instead of taking either discourse as a foundation for my analysis, I began with a simple query that has long-term gendered implication. And that's what made me go and travel around India, um, these regions. What makes these contemporary cross-region marriages conducted across regions of India and involving migration of the brides any different than any other marriage that is taking place in India? After all, women do migrate for marriage because of petri you know, sociological term where the woman relocates to her husband's home. So what is so different? 
Um, what does consent imply for women who are both hegemonized by patriarchal norms governing marriage and gender roles, and simultaneously being constrained by the socioeconomic circumstances? And then, why are some poor women from certain groups evidenced as migrant rights more than others? To elaborate further, um, if one accepts prima facie that skewed sex ratio is the most significant factor causing marriage migration among the Hindus, how then can the prevalence of this practice be explained amongst the male Muslim, among whom there's no shortage of women? They boast the best child sex ratio in India. I mean, the other question that came to my mind was the rural communities to which the bachelors belong are driven by sharp and open caste animosities. Why then do some men seek inter-caste or inter-religious um, alliances that are considered taboo with low-caste women from other regions of India? I mean, if female shortage is indeed a problem, why don't they source brides from locally um, local Dalit caste groups, which are female rich, so to say? Now, often the blame is laid on to the women saying, oh, you know, they just want a better life. So my question there also was to examine, are these marriages instances of strategic hypergamy, whereas the women, wherein the women seek to escape their extreme destitution and poverty by voluntarily opting for such marriages, or, the, or are the women victims of bridal trafficking? Now, with caste discrimination against low caste and also ethno-racist hate, which I'm going to talk about later on, targeted against people from India's north and northeast regions. Um, these are the regions from where most of the brides come. How then are these new brides treated in their new, new communities? What is their lived reality within the shadow of caste violence and ethno-racist hate? And what lessons does it hold for gender rights at a global level? So these were some of my questions that propel um, my research and what I then unfold in the book, so to say. Um, and here are some other images that I have of the women um, and their husbands. I focused on two bride seeking regions, Haryana and Rajasthan, um, over here in the north, and two bride seeking regions of Odisha, uh, sending regions of Odisha and West Bengal in East India. My research tools included triangulated research methods such as surveys, one-on-one -on -one interviews, focus groups, observation, and note-taking. To give you a sense of the data that is at the base of my work, a total of 1,546 self-identifying cross-region brides were surveyed in 226 villages in conjugal regions, while 141 women, families were surveyed in 20 villages from natal provinces. The qualitative phase of the research involved visits to 57 villages, of which 12 were in the natal regions. And over there, I conducted 21 focus groups and 329 one-on-one -on -one interviews, including 116 with cross-region brides from the Hindu and male Muslim communities. I would not suggest this to anyone unless they have a huge research grant. It was a nightmare, um, <laughs> literally, let's say it that way. I conducted interviews with and focus groups with a wide range of people, including women's families, husbands, villagers, caste council members, and those involved in mediating these marriages, such as brokers and traffickers. I also conducted interviews with district national level <clears throat> and national level administrators and law enforcement agencies. 
Now, during fieldwork, my identity as a North Indian female in an inter-ethnic and inter-caste marriage with a Bihari man, so to say. Now, keep that in mind because we're talk, going to talk about ethno-racist hate later on. And the fact that my husband and my young daughter were relatively dark-complexioned unexpectedly opened new areas of inquiry about colorism and inter-caste marriage. Of course, I must admit that I'm a Punjabi from North India and my husband is from East India, a Bihari. Two poles will not meet because in Punjab, there's a lot of ethno-racist hate against the Biharis. So it opened, you know, it, it was really interesting to have these deep conversations about ethno-racism and caste. So while the, view, while the women viewed me as an outsider because of my multiple privileges, uh, my positionality as a mother of a darker hued daughter and the wife of a Bihari man made the cross-region bites interrogate me about my own family's experience and also share their own experiences in their daily lives, which I wonder they might not have done otherwise if, you know, I was just a Punjabi woman married to another Punjabi man. Um, and this is now where I move to my theorizing after giving you this kind of big preamble. Most discussions on contemporary accumulation by dispossession in India focus on the question of land grabs or state-sponsored violence as the state acts as an agent for capital against its own poor citizenry. I borrow from David Harvey's theorizing of accumulation by disposition and extend it to an analysis of these marriages. I argue that these have to be reconceptualized as a web of layered intimate dispositions that are firmly rooted in the material reality of the violent neoliberal accumulative process that began unfolding in India from the 1990s onward. So um, in my book, um, we bro I broaden the conceptualization of dispossession beyond the spectacular in instances of land grabs to one that encompasses a violence occurring silently on a mundane everyday and ongoing basis for impoverished women from India's peripheries in their marriages with North Indian men. Being attendant to material reality, the book reveals that the existing structural and systemic discriminations that make certain historically marginalized communities within India's development peripheries, such as the Dalits and the Muslims, more vulnerable to a series of dispossessions of land, labor, and livelihood also extends to matrimonial options. Um, <clears throat> the burden of capitalist accumulation has been borne disproportionately by these groups in that structural and systemic violence of historical and contemporary discriminations of caste and religion have translated to the limited to zero access to productive resources, land and capital. Incidentally, these groups have historically suffered from higher percentages of landlessness, lack of protected assets, and high poverty rates. These two groups, that is the Dalits and the Muslims, have also the largest numbers living below the poverty line. Interviews with Mehrunissa, with women like Mehrunissa, with whose quote I open the talk, reveal that the pre-existing ideology of patriarchal gender relations and social reproduction conjoined with marketization of social relations through extortive dowry demands made by local eligible males to constrict marriage choices locally for them. So, you know, let me just talk about dowry because that plays a key role in this um, disposition of matrimonial choice. The transactional nature of dowry and the centrality of cash and other assets in firming of marriage alliances between families is of fairly recent vintage among the Dalits and Muslims in India. 
um, and this is a very significant point to groups from which you know large proportion of these women come dowry has emerged as a capital accumulating and by extension a poverty alleviating strategy it offers dispossessed males from these groups and by extension their families who are equally landless precariously precariously employed or underemployed or who also might face the specter of economic migration to the city um, it offers them a form of economic security that they otherwise might lack taking advantage of the women's family's internalization of patriarchal ideology that links societal stigma with having an unmarried daughter at home, the men seize the moment of marriage negotiation to make excessive dowry demands. Now, the integration of social relations into market economy as capital, capitalist relations and the rise in dowry economy forces impoverished families such as the one that you see here to face the specter of debt bondage and land alienation to get their daughters married locally. Thus, the perfect entry point for North Indian men who are so rejected in their own marriage markets back home with their matrimonial offers of no dowry and all exp wedding expenses paid. These are often very hard for poor families with marriageable aged daughters to turn down. Um, with these amazing dowry, um, no dowry and all wedding expenses paid marriage proposal, um, the question that is asked is why are not all poor Dalit and Muslim eligible women and their families making a beeline for these North Indian men? Are all women equally dispossessed of marriage choice or some more than others within the Dalits and Muslims? And this is where I found the most shocking finding of my study more than what I would say, you know, the dispossession um, <clears throat> um, was to uncover the role of colorism or pigmentocracy as marriage capital and being a precipitator, precipitator in disposition of matrimonial choice. Um, here's a fantastic ad for Fair and Lovely, and you can see the grade of a woman who's not smiling as she's dark, and then, you know, she shades to fairness and she is smiling. Colorism, simply put, is discrimination based on the hue of skin tone. Ideologically, it operates as a system that privileges the lighter skinned over the darker skinned people within a community of color. Skin color hierarchy based on a sliding scale of melanin content is defined as pigmentocracy. Colorism, I must stress, is distinct from racism, even though it borrows heavily from racist ideology. Discrimination based on race or ethnicity is experienced by all people belonging to racialized groups, while colorism further defines the racialized minority subjects disprivileged at multiple levels. Fairness emerges as a variable market marriage commodity, with potential grooms demanding that the lack of it be made up by in the form of dowry. Fair skin becomes barterable for lesser dowry and a suitable marriage partner. Impoverished families acknowledge the foreclosing of local marriage options due to what they call the dark skin factor. The centrality of fairness as marriage capital with an idealization of bridal fairness and a gendered pigmentocracy that values lighter skin conjoins with the monetization of social relations through dowry to shut all the local options for darker hued women and thus coerce them voluntarily into cross-region matrimonies. While colorism has existed in India from much earlier with dark skin attributed to low caste and with colonial discourse linking dark skin to savagery, 
it got fresh blood with the opening up of the Indian economy. Today, India is one of the biggest market for skin whitening products with the multinational skin whitening industry heavily invested in aggressively pushing the concept of fairness as capital. The sale of skin whiteners comprises 46% of total facial creams in India. There's a very aggressive marketing happening there. The discourse of fairness as a desired feminine ideal and as marriage capital is disseminated to the remotest of Indian villages through aggressive marketing strategies. Um, <clears throat> its role in dispossession is exemplified this, by this quote um, by this woman who said it. Um, she says, what crime had I committed by being dark skinned that I was punished by being married so far away from the family? My sister, who is lighter in color, got married in my parents' neighboring village. It is only because we had to give a bigger dowry for me that I was married so far away. Um, <clears throat> otherwise, I would be living in my own base or region. Um, why would I come here? Um, and this is something I found being echoed by numerous women as well as by their families back home. <clears throat> as a side note, I want to stress that post-marriage, dark skin stigma haunts the migrant bride's married life too. While conjugal families might be dark complexion, they treat the brides on a relational scale of colorism. Um, <clears throat> out of the so many 113 interviewed brides, 57, which is over half, stated experiencing some form of colorism-related violence that ranged from being color-shamed, receiving taunts about dark skin from family and community. They face ostracism and othering due to the historical linkage of dark skin with low caste status and undesired ethnicity. They are also derided as low caste continually. And it extends to the children, as you see over here. The disposition of marriage choice locally for poor, marriageable aged Dalit and Muslim women thus forces them to marry North Indian men who are considered rejects in their own marriage markets. At a base level, this dispossession results in the cultural alienation of women from their homelands and family members as they head off to lead their married lives in distant North India. You have to understand the import of this alienation operates at multiple levels. The climate is different, the geography, the topography of the land is different, trees, um, language, dress, eating habits, um, everything is different. Even the ways of cooking, um, fetching water are very different. And the women are just flung straight into managing this with no support whatsoever. So if it were not for the increased commoditization of marriage relations through the spread of dowry among these two communities, that is Dalits and Muslims, coupled with the heightened popularization, um, in the contemporary accumulative phase, a majority of the women would not be voluntarily coerced into making such compromised matrimonial choices. And this was stressed to me time and time again by all the women, literally all the women. I do not lay singular blame on these marriages on local men who appear to demand more dowry or those who enter into cross-region matrimonies. Instead, I consider the Indian state through its adoption of neoliberal reforms and it's acting as an agent of global capitalism as an active enabler and facilitator for this particular form of matrimonial decision dispossession. I blame it for its continued marginalization and neglect of certain communities in withdrawing social services that make already precarious groups face heightened vulnerability in not doing enough to ensure access and ownership of resources for women and marginalized communities. 
Um, what is important for us to remember is that the gendered nature of dispossession occurs both in the construction of marriage choices locally in the women's home communities and also in their compromised ability to negotiate advantageous bargains over their labor or freedom of movement within conjugal families in North India. Now, this disposition should be understood as a new form of accumulation that efficiently and if, you know, effectively harnesses oppressive and exploitative ideologies to shape social, reshape social relations, in particular that of marriage and the practice of dowry for what I call the efficient extraction of value and in turn create a new neoliberal avatar of gender subordination and oppression. To clarify, the rise in cross-region marriages has occurred parallel to the entire region experiencing a severe agrarian crisis that has fundamentally transformed the way female family labor within the small and middle peasant household is both viewed and used. The rural poor seek to cushion its impact by extracting more unpaid labor from female family members on the family farms. It's also increasingly priced um, with landless, but even landless farmers using this labor more as a commodity in the casual agricultural wage market, you know, to kind of supplement their ever diminishing income. The impact of what is now understood as feminization of agrarian distress on marriage is evident from quotes um, from rural folks who quite openly say, hired labor is hard to find. If we hire labor, then what returns will there be left for us? We do not have big pieces of land, nor are we landlords. All our earning from the land will go to pay wages. It is better to get a wife than a hired laborer. If there is no female in the house, then the man has no alternative but to sell his milch cattle too. Now, you know, dairy farming is also immersed as a kind of income generation activity. So, you know, apart from not being able to use his wife's labor for generating income, um, they would also not be able to keep um, uh, cattle as well. So the tipping point for men to traverse across India in search of wives happens only when replacement female labor is sought, not otherwise. So, you know, skewed sex ratio doesn't bother them. It's just when, you know, <laughs> they need that replacement of the female labor. The men put forward only just one demand to the marriage mediators. That the bride be a kamkaji aurat, a workhorse who can bear the harsh labor of agricultural work. In fact, many women who are skinny um, are dismissed on grounds by saying that, you know, I don't think she'd make a good worker. So you're not looking for a wife, you're essentially looking for a worker. Anyone else is dismissed as poor investment. While it can be argued that most brides in India have to contend with the familial extraction of their labor for social reproduction, it is worth noting that the ability of the brides to resist what they perceive as excessive demands on the productive and reproductive labor is critically linked to the proximity or otherwise of effective support networks, in particular that of natal kin. Now this bargaining is either totally absent or very significantly reduced for the migrant brides, as you know, is evident from numerous quotes from conjugal families who are interviewed or villagers saying the families extract more work from outsider brides. They have to work more than lo locals or unlike the locals, um, and here this is a mother-in-law who said this to me, unlike the locals, we are able to make the Bahar Valley, which is an outside 
right work for the wage labor in other people's fields they go without protest through these marriages of course then patriarchy neatly intersects with systemic oppressions to facilitate uninterrupted capitalist accumulation and thus stem agrarian unrest the women's internalization of the hegemonic patriarchal ideology reduces the need for what we call overt violence and coercion otherwise central in accumulation by dispossession and poor women of marriageable age um, voluntarily agree to these matrimonies and to the transference of the labor via marriage to North Indian families such as this woman that you see here. The internalization of the market economy ethos and the reinforcement of migrant rights value as expendable commodities wherein inefficient or unproductive goods or wares are replaceable with more efficient ones are also evident in comments such as if they will not work as expected, very much like a buffalo that does not yield enough milk, they will be dispensed with or replaced with another hardworking woman. So this conceptual framework, I argue, of gender matrimonial dispossession challenges us to think beyond blunt categories of caste assimilation, sex deficit, or bridal trafficking in studying these multiply transgressive matrimonies. On a broader level, it offers a macro-analytical framework for feminists everywhere to acquire a better understanding about the reshaping of structural oppressions due to contemporary forces of neoliberalism which then forced poor women from marginalized communities um, worldwide into making compromised choices about their bodies, their labor, and their lives. On that note, you know, I'm sure all of you must be curious to know. So, Irina, you've spoken for, what, 20 minutes about marriages. How do these marriages take place? Um, what about trafficking and deception? So my work was the first to undertake a systematic collection of information about marriage routes, mediators, expenses involved. Um, you know, I was also um, wondering, are all the women married or trafficked or so on? So the surveys surprisingly reveal that trafficking by bride traffickers, trafficking gangs and husbands constitutes a very small percentage of cross-region marriages. While most are chain migrations that are facilitated by mediators such as migrant brides, their husbands or other people. Some underreporting can be attributed because of the fear of the brides not wanting to speak out. But in natal um, villages where I also conducted the survey, this did not appear to hold true. So migrant brides arrange most cross-region marriages. Often they're asked to arrange a bride just like you for male relatives or neighbors. Their natal relatives and neighbors also request that they arrange similar dowry-free matrimonies for you know, their female wards. The husbands comprise another significant category of marriage mediators who are reached, by, reached out by um, men in their community saying, why don't you fetch a bride just like yours? Other unlikely actors include the fathers um, or the brides, um, uh, you know, fathers or brothers of the women. Among the male, interestingly, what we find is that the Malvis are Muslim religious preachers and the Jamaats are religious congregations that undertake tours of Muslim majority areas also facilitate alliances through their contact with poverty-stricken families with marriageable age daughters. There are also self-initiated marriages undertaken by North Indian men. <coughs> All such forms of marriage matchmaking have allowed for gradual emergence of what we call female migration chain. 
Now, for all these efforts, most mediators um, get a free ride back to natal regions, small gifts of cash, and small tokens of jewelry. <coughs> However, and this is one um, woman who got her sister married out, um, and here I come to the role of agents. However, the desperation of local grooms to pay cash to secure brides proves too irresistible for brides and their husbands, such as the man you see here, who then walk a thin line between trafficking and mediating for commission <coughs> as they gloss over or falsify details about the men's physical age, etc., or make them appear attractive husband material. Women are also tricked by distant female relatives. Criminal gangs also traffic brides, and in most cases, they involve rural people embedded in both natal and conjugal communities. However, this is not the singular source of matchmaking, despite the assertion of anti-trafficking activists. In all my four years of research and the vast extensive research that I did, um, it just I what I uncovered was it just comprised around over 4.7% of marriages, unlike the claim that all brides are trafficked. Now, <coughs> the horror narrative of migrant brides such as this um, woman you see here being surveilled and ill-treated bare partial truth. They encounter regulatory regimes that local brides are usually exempt from, ranging from total confinement within the house to restricted movement within the village. The claustrophobia that is brought on by this constant surveillance and regulation results in women experiencing their lives as being confined to prison. Um, Three-fourths of the women that I spoke to said that they were refused permission to go to their natal provinces in the early years of the marriage till they had their first child. And then the child was held as hostage and the women were allowed to go home on, only knowing that they would come back. The conjugal families enforced these regimes in fear that their investment might be wasted. Um, these normalized hostage-like situations exclusively are limited to cross-region brides, and they should rightly be interpreted as acts of violence that attack women's freedom of movement and make them experience discrimination on a daily basis, both within the household and in the village. However, <clears throat> it is these experiences and ethnocentric views about the brides as bought that anti-trafficking activists and organization singularly choose to present as um, evidence of all brides as trafficked. The framing of gendered migration as a moral crime is undertaken to evoke an emotional response to elicit a stronger carceral approach. Instead of focusing on structural and systemic discriminations and exclusions that create a zero-sum choice for these women, the anti-trafficking lobby blames easy targets such as the women's parents saying that, oh, you know, they want money for drinking or the husbands. Um, ironically, the government's strong um, carceral policy approaches and the rescue and repatriation intervention measures propelled in large part due to the pressure of the anti-trafficking lobby allows it to demonstrate its proactiveness in dealing with the so-called large-scale commodification of women. I argue that this lets the Indian state off the hook without holding it accountable for its active role in the transformation of its own citizens into commodities and second-class citizens. So, you know, with the discussion on 
what's happening with the caste, what I found was, um, despite attempts of some Indian scholars to downplay or ignore the salience of caste ideology in rural regions, um, my findings show that caste discrimination is experienced as quotidian violence by the women within the intimacy of their marriage and in the rural communities. The most striking aspect of caste-based oppression here is that intimate practices of prejudice take place mostly within the four walls of the house, shared both by those perpetrating the violence as well as the one who's experiencing it. <clears throat> Living in a joint family setup under a common roof makes it easier to treat the bride differentially on a 24-7 basis, such as setting up of a separate cooking area or eating area, not taking them to communal events or not allowing them to perform prayers or subjugating them to caste laws. Local women also resort to intentional use of caste epithets to mark caste boundaries and to assert caste superiority over the brides. At the very base level, caste laws are deployed as verbal weapons to assert caste supremacy and show the brides their proper designation within the family hierarchy, summed up pithily by this quote by a woman who said, we do it deliberately for we know it will hurt them. <coughs> Public caste shaming Denigration and caste exclusionary practices are not unfamiliar to the Dalit brides. Growing up in rural communities, they learn to recognize from an early age the operationalization of caste-linked unequal power relations. So, you know, while they carry this ingrained knowledge with them to their new communities in North India, what they find it particularly hard to accept is this continual onslaught of caste discrimination within the intimacy of their marriage and household, something that they wouldn't have had to experience, and that is summed up by this quote. Um, we were better off in our own regions, at least then I would not have to continually hear insulting remarks about my caste or my ethnicity. Um, the folks here call us low caste all the time. If I had got married back home, I would not face such taunts then. And this is something really important for us to understand. Apart from this caste-based um, violence that dogs them from back home and gets exacerbated here, um, my study discovered another very uncomfortable truth, that of ethnocentrism and ethnocentric violence. Um, Ethnocentrism, often interchangeably called ethnoracism, is widely practiced in rural North India and has a very toxic impact on the brides and their children. Ethnocentrism involves a peculiar mix of cultural chauvinism, wherein one ethnic group inhabiting a certain geographic area or sharing some common cultural traits such as language, customs, religion, or history, reifies its culture in, and in addition to claiming intellectual and physical prowess. It's done by constructing the other group as inferior, very much like caste ideology in the ethnic project, ethnic groups are placed on a hierarchical ranking with the dominant ethnic group on the top and others placed relationally to it. In the case of North India, the distinctly different physical features, food habits and manners of people from Northeast India result in a particularly corrosive form of ethnoracism exhibited against them, ranging from prejudicial and derogatory behavior to actual acts of physical violence. In particular, the province of Bihar, you know, that same old province from where my husband comes from, is typically presented as one that is poor backward with its people or Biharis as they're known as deceitful, dirty and uncouth. Consequently, a pejorative label of Biharan or women hailing from Bihar is branded on all migrant brides, such as 
um, this woman you see here who's making bangles, who are then stereotyped as being ugly, primitive in behavior, and less intelligent. Um, in fact, I must admit the knowledge of my husband as a Bihari allowed women to open about this in detail. The fiction of ethnic collectivity and cultural difference is used to transform minorities into deviants from the normal, so-called normal, and thus, you know, create exclusion from access to resources. The belonging to a particular collectivity constructed through social relation, uh, location and identification also often demands the internal other shed or deny their own cultural or ethnic identity in order to be considered for inclusion. Fashioning, <clears throat> fashioning and circulating a dichotomy of us versus them both create and justify a series of exclusionary regimes for those other brides. Ethno-racist ideology also provides the conjugal families and communities justification for the supposed filtering out or cleansing of undesirable cultural characteristic. This make, involves forcibly making the brides shed their cultural markers, including language, customs, and ensuring their conformity to local customs and languages. They are punished if they speak in their language. Um, at the very base level, the moment they come to the conjugal homes, their names are changed um, because they are unpronounced. They're called unpronounceable. Now, this form of assimilation is not benign. Instead, it is a deliberate and violent act of cultural erasing, one where no accommodation is made to respect the women's cultural heritage. Um, there's also eugenics that operates against the women and their children um, being, you know, hailed as uncivilizational. Um, there's, uh, you know, um, anxieties about dark-skinned women diluting local racial attributes or breeding women that are deceased. Um, I've painted this large image of, you know, a victim pathos, and I'll take the last five minutes to talk briefly about gaining dignity through resistance and refusal. Um, these are women who are trying to carve out some spaces of respect and dignity through refusal and resistance. Um, the, they push back against deceptions and curtailments imposed on their freedom of movement to secure small reprieves. Nor do they appear to docilely accept the exploitative extraction of labor from them. Um, <clears throat> you know, these acts are happening simultaneously as they're trying to figure out their position in the caste and ethnocentric hierarchy in the family as well as an intimate relationship. So this assertion of dispersed resistance is individualized and scattered across everyday subtle acts that are integrated into the social life and are constituted as part of normality. And this is done in order to avoid disciplining mechanism. Um, and this happens during the process of undertaking routine household activities. Unlike Gramscian counter-hegemonic rebellions that seek to dismantle dominant hegemonies, these everyday acts of resistance stop outright, you know, stop short of outright defiance and are more indirect. So, you know, they follow the women follow the rules of the games, whether they are doing household chores such as filling water or working in the fields. But what they do is um, <clears throat> they feign tiredness. They reduce um, what they do. They either feign tiredness or unfamiliarity with the kind of chores. Um, what is interesting is for these women, the female relatives of their husbands and that of the local women belonging to the same caste constitute the immediate and visible dominant group responsible for their oppression. 
It is against this group that their everyday act of resistance is enacted. Now, the irony of this resistance lies in the fact that both categories of women, whether subordinate or dominant, are members of the larger subordinate group of women within the hegemonic patriarchal ideology. Now, the women were very clear in emphasizing that the success of their covert resistance lies in it being undetected. Uh, <clears throat> now, you know, a handful of brides openly discussed how they negotiated intimacy with their husbands and used it to start, strike advantageous bargains for themselves. Arranging marriages for other women from their own kin groups or villages with men from their conjugal communities allows them opportunities to have a collective of women from their own community in these new areas to create informal support and, you know, deter policing mechanism. <clears throat> the women's shared cultural heritage also reduces the degree of cultural isolation and alienation felt. Sometimes they gather together and are able to speak in their own language. A quote from a migrant bride from Odisha who arranged marriages and um, um, uh, said to me, um, having a woman from my region as an elder sister in law allows us to speak in our language and reminiscence about home. Whenever we get nostalgic, we cook food from our land and sit on the roof and eat together. Village women laugh at us, but we do not care. Now, <clears throat> uh, this woman that you see over here, um, brides also persuade their husbands to set up separate households as it allows them to get away from intimate acts of caste prejudice, ethnocentrism, and continual demands on their labor. Um, <clears throat> now, this persuasion stems from the refusal to continue with the intolerance and it's also an articulation of willful and deliberate rejection and you know i argue it's a political act as it proclaims loudly your power has no authority over me um a similar political act of refusal is evidenced in the women's deliberate choice to not associate with kin members and villagers who ostracize them um, you know, they refuse their tormentors the opportunity to make fun of their caste, their dark skin, or remind them of their ethnicity. So in end, you might, con you know, I'll conclude by, by saying, uh, you know, you might ask me, so why is this micro study of any, val any value anywhere else um, apart from India? Within India, with the looming marriage crisis caused by a massive female shortage, nuanced and detailed findings about the status of migrating brides are crucial for policymakers, planners, and activists, and scholars as well, working in the area of gender rights, development, caste, ethnicities, migration, and sexuality, um, to get a better understanding so that, you know, we don't, you know, um, simplistically look at them. How this crisis will manifest itself in the future has profound societal and political implications, not just for India, but also for its neighboring countries, as the bride deficit might cause desperate Indian bachelors to cross national boundaries. Understanding these marriages at the intersection of caste, class, ethnicity, religion, location, and color within the constructed category of cross-region brides, and how these significantly alter their status and lived experience moves, um, you know, um, illuminates a more complex view that I feel would allow scholars and activists to gain a nuanced understanding about these marriages and the rights and status of cross-region brides, um, and thus shape their strategies for engagement and design policies and programs that are sensitive to the specific needs of the brides. On a broader level, 
<clears throat> it offers a macro-analytical framework to understand the workings of neoliberalism, ethnocultural chauvinism, classism, and other social oppressions that shape the choices and vulnerabilities of poor and marginalized women. Moreover, most importantly, of course, it allows us to understand how new forms of dispossession are created in the service of global capital. And with this, I end my talk um, and I open the floor for discussion now. Thank you so much. Let me have Thank a support. you. <laughs> Thank you, Rina. Thank you so much. Uh, I cannot wait to read the whole book. Uh, this was amazing, fascinating, really. Uh, so we're gonna open the floor for questions. Uh, you can either use the chat function uh, or raise your hand. I'll give a second to see if we have anyone from the audience. Anya. <clears throat> Hi, um, I'm wondering about how many families, either in in uh, Northeast India or in North India, have cell phones. How is communication between women and their natal families, and um, uh, how is their access to any kind of recourse if they're being abused? Mm -hmm. That's a very good question, Anya. You asked. Um, uh, there's a mobile telephony revolution in India. Google and find out what is the digital footprint in India. It's phenomenal. Um, when these marriages started surfacing in 1990s, cell phones were not ubiquitous, um, but now they are. They're everywhere. Almost every um, family of woman has it, including those in the conjugal and natal families. Um, it's allowed for women to keep in touch with the natal families more frequently. However, I do want to stress that women consider marriage, even with a bad person, you know, a bad husband material as sacrosanct. They consider it their fate or kismet. And they say, this is what is in our karma and we have to bear with it. And why should we tell our families the kind of despair we live on a daily basis because they will only suffer. They are so far away, they can do nothing. So quite often when they speak on the phone, and this is something that I ask them all the time, um, don't you tell your families what's happening with you? Um, they can come and get you. They say they're so poor, they can barely feed themselves. Um, and our homes are so far away. Um, if we go back, what will we do? What will our families do? They will have to face the stigma of having a married woman come back. So what they do is they fake a happy marriage. They tell their families they're doing fine. The only time the phone comes in handy is when a woman faces abuse in the form of trafficking and she gets hold of the phone, especially when the trafficking has happened from a bride or a husband mediator or a family relative. They make sure that the family knows that this agent really um, messed up their life. And they, you know, one of the women said, I called up my family and ensured that that agent could not work at all in the village. I put a stop, a dead stop to his trafficking of more women. It, you know, only I would be in a misery. I didn't want others to be in misery. So what happens is it propels a different form of, you know, 
action against those kinds of agents who then have to move their activities elsewhere, but they don't share their sadness. And that's something I found even with my work in Greece with the migrant men, they never tell their families what's happening with their lives on a day-to-day -day basis, even though everyone has phone. But it's a great question. Thank you. Hands. And while, oh, Julie. Hi, Professor Rina. Thank you very much for your interesting presentation. Um, I was just wondering, um, because I'm a student and I'll be doing research, um, how did you, for example, manage to conduct these discussions or interviews with these women, um, given that their time during the day is like taken up by the household chores? or given the context in which, for example, they're in a foreign in-laws house and given your positionality with them, um, I mean, what kind of challenges were there in trying to get these interviews or discussions and how did you navigate that? Mm -hmm. Very good question. And especially from a methodological perspective. So I, I do want to say I didn't make a cold entry into any village. In all the regions that I worked or chose to work with, um, I found um, allies in terms of local grassroots organizations working on caste um, issues or gender rights. So these were the ones who became my allies and they worked in tandem with me to conduct the surveys. So the field workers were locals. They were also embedded in the rural communities. Many of them were Dalits. Um, so in that sense, I had a softer entry. The other thing was that these community organizations, some many of the community organizations, many of the community organizations that I worked with, um, had seen my filmmaking practice and they used that to inform the women that, you know, Herina is legit. So it created a different sense of legitimacy. It also helped to live in the village. Um, now, conducting this discussion with the women, we did it in all weird places, including the time when we went peeing and pooing together. Okay, so you would be going to pee with a bottle of water in your hand in the bushes and then you'd be talking about what's happening. Or I would observe how, you know, a sister-in-law is following her, the newly married bride. So every moment was a learning moment for me. The women chose when they wanted to um, meet, they had their phones or they would tell the, um, the workers or myself that this is when they wanted to meet me. The interviews would stretch from anywhere in the early morning or in the field. Quite often these were held when their family members were not close by. Right? Um, how did I have these frank discussions with them? This is where, you know, the field workers were really fantastic. I would, um, with the women, I would always sit with them facing outside. I would face them, but my back would be to the people. The women would be facing the outside and so they would know who was coming and so I would always tell them hey you know I'm asking you this these very intimate questions and if you see someone who comes prying in just begin by starting a new answer and many a times they would do that so they'd say you know I, I'm facing caste discrimination and the next sentence would be um why aren't you having tea with us I have asked you so many times and I would know that this was what was happening someone had come in to surveil so 
Other times, the field workers would take away their mother-in-laws or sister-in-laws and start conversing to them about different things um, and, and detract them. So there were different strategies that we adopted on a case-to-case -case basis. Um, one of the questions that was asked was, um, ask me for help or recommendation about resources. So for all the women, actually, that's a very good question. Um, we, um, they had phone numbers of all the NGOs um, that were working in the area. Um, and the problem was they did not want to reach out to these local people because they saw them as still as partial outsiders. So they would speak to me and they would say, do anything, get the word out, because even if the organization, the community volunteers um, took them to the police station to register a case against intimate partner violence or disinheritance, the police was also embedded within the caste and the family of the community. Quite often, the police officer who was um, manning the police station, literally, would be a cousin of the husband. And he would just dismiss her by saying, come on, are you crazy? You come here to launch a case against my brother-in-law? And then he would scare her off, and then she'd go home and get beaten back in blue. So the women had learned a lesson to not speak, but to do what we call the other forms of resistances. Um, so yeah, um, Julie, I hope I've answered your question um, to some extent. Um, it implies having a lot of time, um, having a lot of different kind of strategies to cope. Um, I think, Paul, you have your hand up. Yes, thank you um, very much for um, your presentation and for this book. Um, <clears throat> my name is Paul. I'm from the Faculty of Education, uh, PhD students in education. Um, I'm very much interested in your presentation and specifically um, with respect to the colorism that you talked about. Uh, lately, I've, I've been reading um, Fernand's work and uh, Gilroy's work with respect to epidemialization and um, how this impacts um, inferiority among um, racialized populations, and racialized economy. I was just thinking um, if you could shed a bit more light on how the racial economy, or if it is correct to argue that this um, um, whitening or toning, um, ton to cream, uh, these companies that produce these toning creams or these whitening creams, if this is a production or a product of racial economy or colonial economy, um, because I am thinking, I, I don't know, but I'm thinking that some of these um, products are shipped from Western countries. Um, I don't know. So, but I just wanted to shed a bit light on this with respect to the epidemic thinking that Paul Giroy and the, the epidemialization of, of Fenon. Mm -hmm. um, great question, Paul. And um, before I answer your question, there's one question talking about, you know, in the um, the chat talking about, do we have an estimate of their population or such families? Um, what are, in a district, I mean, you have to understand um, populations are huge numbers. Um, it needs the organizations to map out more clearly. What I did was mapping out in very small, um, so all the villages in one specific area were all mapped out. So I got numbers 
or percentages of the marriages that were happening and those that constituted as cross-region marriages. Of course, I mean, the numbers, um, I began in 2011 and then I did another survey in 2014. The numbers had changed drastically. Now we're, we're sitting in 2023, the numbers would have changed significantly because I know anecdotally um, people call me up and say more and more women are coming in. So, um, you know, the state does not permit any kind of data on intercaste marriages um, or intercaste alliances also to take place. So we really have no idea locally or what is happening on a larger scale. Quite often people don't want to mention that this is an intercaste marriage or an interreligion marriage because then that implies an outing of their othering, right? That they are entered into a transgressive alliance. So quite often they say the woman is, uh, you know, is from our caste or our community, even though she might not be. So coming back to Paul's question about, you know, the skin whitening um, industry and the pigmentocracy and the racial economy. Um, now you have to understand colorism has pre-existed in India. Um, there are historical accounts of, you know, how um, darkness was associated with what is known in India as the Adivasi groups or, um, you know, the tribal groups, so to say, those are the kind of terms that are constitutionally enshrined and used. Um, <coughs> and, and that was also done to um, legitimize the caste hierarchy, very much like what, you know, we talk about the racial economy as well. Um, it, it, it legitimized um, belittling certain groups, linking dark skin to savagery, um, linking dark skin to primitiveness, to less intelligence. And, and therein then it provided legitimacy for acquisition and control of resources, including that of the dark skinned people's labor by you know, seeing them as less worth off. Um, and that same thing has perpetuated even in contemporary India, nothing, I mean, nothing seems to have changed. In fact, what we see is a kind of strengthening with the globalizing trend. And in that, um, the, the whitening, the multinationals have played a big role. Um, what also has not helped is, I'm sorry, a bit noisy, I think the classes have ended over here um, in the background. Um, what has also not helped is the large inroads of Western media into um, and the whole, you know, into rural villages where you have the discourse of whiteness um, becoming more salient. Um, I, whenever I would go back to India, um, quite often the woman who is working in, in the villages, they would say, bring us these fairness creams because you know you live in the west so they know they they have the best creams from here so please bring them and i would you know carry ordinary saint ives creams and they'd say this is nothing we want the ones that will transform us into these magical beauties um so you can see what's happening um and and this is where I talk about colorism as marriage capital, because in India, it takes a very different form than elsewhere, where it becomes a kind of color becomes capital for women to acquire hypergamous alliances, um, to secure advantageous marriages. Um, even within the same family, you'll have a woman who has 
who's less darker skinned is able to uh, you know have a better marriage choice within the village than her younger sister within the same family the husband uh, the, the the sisters are exposed to different degrees of colorism violence within their own families like they'll tell her a kali kalutan or you know hey you dark skinned girl this is used commonly i mean when i was sharing the finding with my father um, my father is also dark skinned so to say um, we're all dark skinned but you know this is all a sliding scale remember okay um, and he in in his 94th year said you know when i was young people would make fun of me and would call me kala kawa like a black crow he remembered that from long ago and he and i said dad does it hurt you he said you know it hurts me still that people would say you know this kala kawa has the you know has a desire to get married to a fair skinned woman like come on and my my mom was relatively fair skinned so he was made fun of and taunted for his ability to acquire a bride or to desire her as his partner so you can see it runs deep um i don't know whether i've answered your question paul to some extent but it's acquired a menacing form um with a the aggressive reach of multinationals they're using advertisements to sell whiteness or fairness uh, let's just put it whiteness as the key to not just marital success but also to employment opportunities so you know you have these ads of women who are rejected ad nauseum in jobs and then they put on this whitening cream and they get the job of a stewardess worse now in india we have what we call vaginal whitening creams which are now being marketed to um make your spouse not um you know put his face away against a sexual relation because that intimate part of your body is going to be more inviting and desirable so you can see how even the very act of sex is uh, is is um rendered in colorism tones um i could go on and on paul but yeah i'll stop here for a moment um i feel we there's have, another question um, yeah we have another question in the chat uh, serena asks did you personally face any discrimination or backlash for conducting and publishing this research either inside or outside of these communities okay and i also see rana has her hand up for a long time now personally i didn't face any discrimination from these communities let me put it that way um the communities welcomed me including the family members or the husband's families later on when i was in the mayo family um in the community i got a backlash from the hindu right groups who said you know why are you here with the mayo muslims and that is understandable with the rise of hindutva supremacist ideology um surprisingly and much to my sadness the biggest backlash i've had about this work is actually from indian scholars who have presented these marriages as amazing instances of caste integration or national integration um my work was the first to speak out about this because um if abby my supervisor is here um she would you know i remember sharing what was happening and the backlash has been quite awful they have sought to discipline me and saying how could you do this um and this is what i talk in one of my earliest articles about 
you know, um, feminist, Brahminical feminism, which is what the Dalit feminist thought talks, and I borrow from it heavily for my own thinking and theorization. Um, this is the Brahminical feminists who actually reacted against me and have sought to stifle my voice and my findings. Of course, there are new generation of scholars who are reading this and are working differently. But um, the sad part is I have moved away from India now because of this. They have succeeded in silencing me to some extent within India. Um, so yeah, over to you, Rana. You have a question and then I see Adaku's hand. I don't know how you're pronouncing. Um, yeah. Rana, are you there? Hi, Rina. First, I have to congratulate you for the, such a big work you've been doing it. And uh, we all been coming from the same background. I'm also a filmmaker and it's really difficult to touch such a subject and take some pictures and you've been showing it. I'm really very happy like you did it. I have a question. You said that you uh, filmed most of the part and you talked to those people through the NGOs or the social workers or the case study workers. As you have mentioned it, what all work they are doing it over there? Are they really helping them out or those women who are suffering and how they are helping? And could you just a little bit highlight on those points? So I'll also get up. Uh, I'll also know it. What actually is going on over there as a help? Okay, great. Thank you. So, um, you know, they're not working with caseworkers in sociological terms. So these are community based organizations or what we call NGOs that are working locally. They have a very small and very localized footprint on, say, maybe a small district or a number of villages. Um, one of the most significant ones is actually um, the ones that was operative in that time in, in, in the Rivari district, which was the Mahila uh, you know, it was a women's advocacy group that was rural women's constituted. So it was locally run um, rural women who provided legal advocacy. And they were the ones who were at the forefront of breaking down these kind of barriers against migrant rights. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and and they, they, you know, they would follow them through to the, uh, the police stations, they would allow for women to escape bad marriages by, you know, um, buying them tickets and sending them home. It's very difficult for women to navigate two days of train journey without knowing how to get around it. So there were different ways in which they were providing support. Um, in, in the natal regions, it, it's different. Um, the two organizations that I worked with, one of them was working with these community groups in the aftermath of the cyclone in Orissa that had devastated rural communities. So they were trying to create better forms of income generation for them. The other one was trying to create awareness among the local communities that everyone should have a register of who are the marriage agents, who reaches out to your family. So creating awareness within the communities. And you have to understand they're not working on marriage migration per se, but they're working on gender rights overall. One of the big things that they all say has worked in the favor has been um, to uh, have marriage certificates become a law. Because by having these legalization of marriage certificates and making all marriages compulsory to have this paper document allows 
women to say, hey, I'm married. And so they cannot be denied of any inheritance. Um, within the Mayo community, the biggest shift has come on in the Alva region, Matsya Mevat um, uh, and Shiksha Kendra, that has worked with the Malvis um, and the local communities um, to ensure that Nika Namas are given to all the women that they all have a copy of it and that they all send a copy of it back home to their families so that you know it cannot be torn up so in time of need the family can be reached out and said ma you know can can you send me the nikanama so that's something they also started self-help groups of these cross-region women in marriages to come together so these were quite nascent um and obviously things have changed because of um, the rise of Hindu fundamentalists in this region that do not want to talk about caste, do not want to talk about you know what's happening in the Mayo Muslims. Of course, the Mayo Muslims are totally, totally othered. They have been pushed into silence and, and pushed against the walls. So they don't speak out anything anymore. Um, so yeah, those are the kind of various activities that are happening. So yeah, thank you for asking that Rana. Rana and I okay. both um, yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, Adaku, you had a question and your hand up raised very um, patiently. Just resist um, um, commending your work, Raina. Like it's resonated with me on so many levels. So, being an Igbo woman from present day Nigeria, a multi uh, ethnic group uh, country, and um, personally, by my country standard, being light skinned, you know, so I know the privileges that come with it and um yeah so like my my question uh, is kind of um, your personal thoughts on the future because looking at what is going on in my own country i think paul um mentioned it in a way like um the terms we use um when you're speaking of colorism now it, people don't use maybe bleaching or words like that you see glow up in things like that you know so the, the terms have really changed and is now also a money-making machine so what are your personal predictions for these things like in india like um the caste system the challenges these women face in marriages and how these things have become now more of cultural like embedded in systems like what are your personal predictions for maybe the near future maybe 10 years you've spoken about the impact on uh marriage and even on the global like how selective abortions are occurring um we have more men now than less women but then on a more local cultural scale what are your personal predictions um right um not good i would say um the caste violence has exacerbated among you know against the lower caste in the regions that i work with the rise of hindu fascist ideology gaining strength in these regions has meant that women who come from um, ethnicities that do not subscribe or buy in to this kind of fascist Hindu ideology um, face um, stigmatization and violence. So they are silenced. Um, and it's also allowed and legitimized this kind of caste. It's what I've seen is um, the there's a kind of legitimizing of violence that is happening uh, of caste and of ethnicity and religion more and more. 
talking about colorism um it's gained more strength um google indian matrimonial ads look at any ads um yes of course the names may have changed but in matrimonial ads the names or the cast names are always entered um and there's always mention of fair fair complexioned um bride you know so on so forth they'll mention fair complexioned by a younger bride um, so they've mentioned the name of the cast and so you know it's a cue um and and a cue for people to filter out undesirables as i mentioned earlier on it's only 5% of intercaste marriages it's become even worse now with india passing laws against um interreligious marriages the whole bogey of love jihads or love you know villainous love crusades that are launched by muslim men to woo and convert hindu women is now a bogey used to um a ban interreligious marriages and in fact not too long ago there was also this talk about um banning intercaste marriages so i remember telling my husband here in the comfort of my kingston home saying hey what would our marriage be now if we were in india and and, and so you can understand what shape india is taking right now it's quite frightening um and in terms of gender rights absolutely abysmally bad i hate to present a picture of horror but um i myself fear for my daughter's safety um let alone think about what's happening to women in rural villages where um misogyny rules where caste um violence against lower caste young women and um girls from lower caste is normalized as a disciplining tool um and where politicians that hold important positions at the government at the federal government level say it is okay to rape muslim women and that we should get brides from muslim you know um, majority kashmir as our brides for other men hindu men so essentially it's okay to ban muslim men marrying marrying um uh, hindu women but it's totally legit to abduct muslim kashmiri women and marry them off um so what we're seeing is extreme depravity of violence um and of course all of that will percolate down as well within the rural areas i mean the mobilization of the cadres has been made amazingly effective and efficient there So yeah, um, any questions? Um, I don't want to go on in a deep spiral of <laughs> negativity here. Um, uh, I mean, I was gonna wrap up, but there is one more question. Maybe this could be the last question, Rina. Uh, yeah. With the, per- with the pervasiveness of colorism globally, do you think of it in the context of eugenics to further uh, whiten populations or castes in India's context? To continue a legacy of social and economic capital and to maintain an image of a pure community um, bit, yeah um and that is witness even in my work um and i didn't touch upon it in my talk but it's there in the book where i talk about and i know one researcher young researcher who's working on children of cross region marriages where very much like you know how marriages in um between african americans and the whites in the us were banned because of the fear of miscegenation the same operates here 
um, the kind of racial attributes of civilizational purity versus backwardness and primitivity are attributed as culturally innate or inherited traits. And this has gained strength um, by the fact that, you know, um, constitutionally, India has enshrined that all caste groups are equal. However, now there's a backlash saying, no, some caste groups are more civilizationally, intellectually um, better. Um, and you can see it in our physical strength. And that is also um, evident in, um, in the recruitment that the Indian Army does based on caste and ethnic groups. You know, you have the Jat Regiment, you have the Gurkha Regiment. These are all ethnic caste groups that, you know, these are the way in which recruitment occur. So um, it's not just colorism, it's a multiplicity of ethnocentricism that finds a brilliant toxic alliance with um, colorism, with ethnocentrism, casteism, and Hindu supremacism, which of course cast the internal other, the Muslims, as, as demonic. And, you know, if we say that, you know, you're presenting inherited traits as passed on through the milk of the mother, then, you know, you're saying that the Muslims are also passing on cunningness, um, they're a terrorist terrorism is written their genes so all of those is being passed on and that's also is presented on so yeah um i would not just use colorism as one example but i would use an intersectional approach where i bring in all these toxic ideologies how they um work together in tandem um, yeah thank you so much rina this was really amazing uh extremely amazing research and as I said you know I cannot wait to read the book and for those of you who are in Kingston friendly reminder the book launch will happen tonight at 7 p.m at Novel Idea uh, and also Rina has um, uh, her exhibit this is evidence coming back to the Isabel on her most recent research with migrant men in Greece uh, between February 6th and February 17th uh, thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you, Aicha, Carolyn, and Michelle Monique for giving me this opportunity. Take care, everyone. Bye.